So far in this series of lectures on England's reformations and their legacies, we've been dealing with might-have-beens, with victims, with opponents, with opportunists and exploiters. And I don't apologize for dwelling on those perspectives at length, because between them they constituted the experience of most of the English people. But it's true that the English Reformation was, for some people, neither an unwanted horror nor a tempting opportunity. It was a pulse-quickening possibility, a moment eagerly to be seized. So threaded through all the grubby politicking is another story, a story of ideas, of faith, of courage and of renewal. You may regard its protagonists as heroes or as fanatics, but they're undoubtedly a different cast of characters from the ones we've been dealing with up till now. For many people, both now and then, this is the real English Reformation, a story which was suppressed at the time and has often been deliberately forgotten since, but which will not go away. In 1517, a German Augustinian friar named Martin Luther picked a high-profile fight with his local archbishop over some fundraising practices, a fight which quickly mushroomed into two dangerously intertwined conflicts. Luther made his critique in the form of a series of, of sweeping theological principles which seemed to deny not just the basis of the letters of indulgence, which had kicked the whole thing off, but also most of the ministry that the church offered to its people. He said that all a true Christian needed was faith and the word of God alone, that neither the rituals and sacraments of the church, nor even the good works around which so much Christian life was based, were necessary for salvation. And his opponents in the hierarchy countered, but not, not by answering his arguments, but by insisting that Luther ought to submit humbly to the authoritative determinations of the church. The result of which, of course, is that Luther and his allies were soon defying not only the church's teachings, but its authority. And they were doing so in printed pamphlets, in sermons, in ballads, and in a brush fire of rumour and excitement that was setting much of Germany alight. We can't call these people Protestants yet. That word was only coined in 1529, and it was a long time before it would come to be applied to the movement as a whole. There wasn't yet a party, but there was a broad, loose movement, which, for want of a better word, we can call evangelical. That is, literally a movement of the gospel, of the Christian good news. And if it seems breathtakingly self-assured, even presumptuous, for this movement to lay claim to the Christian gospel as its own property, well, breathtaking self-assurance was very much what these people did. The heart of this fire is in the German-speaking lands, where, where Martin Luther's uniquely inflammatory words weren't tamped down by translation, and where the particular politics of church and state made for bone-dry tinder. 
But the sparks were quickly flying elsewhere too, and everywhere they landed, they started to smolder. So the Netherlands, Denmark, Poland, Hungary, Italy was surprisingly receptive. France, with its long interest, long history of tetchy relations with the papacy, was uh, an, an obvious uh, opportunity. Maybe the least promising of the major European territories was the larger of the island kingdoms off to the northwest. Not just for the political reasons I've talked about in, in previous lectures. Um, structurally as well, England was green wood for the heretics. The English church was unusually well-disciplined and well-led by European standards. There were none of the egregious scandals and abuses that were common elsewhere. And the English church was also uniquely experienced in actually dealing with heresy. The so-called Lollard movement, which we'll come back to in the final lecture, had been sputtering away in England for nearly a century and a half. Bishops and clergy elsewhere knew about heresy in theory. The English are familiar with it in practice. Even so, the sparks fell. The initial entry points for the new doctrines and the mood of defiance that accompanied them were the same as they were everywhere. Merchants plying the North Sea routes were early transmitters. As we all know, international travelers are key vectors. A group of German merchants in London were arrested for the possession of heretical books in 1526, and gospelers and evangelicals began to be spotted amongst Londoners as well. But another critical early entry point was the universities, petri dishes for dangerous ideas. Scholars always had uh, a degree of freedom to explore provocative and questionable doctrines. It's no accident that Luther's own protest erupted after having been incubated in a university setting for several years. And England's universities had some particular characteristics. Um, unlike, for example, neighbouring Scotland with its three tiny institutions scattered across the country, England, for a big country, had just two universities, but they're substantial. Each of them has got considerable critical mass. They've both got a fair degree of legal independence, and their colleges and their halls form a rabbit warren of jurisdictions. Neither one's got a resident bishop breathing down their necks, um, and remarkably, given that England is an unusually centralised country, neither of them is in London, so they don't have the royal court breathing down their necks either. In one way, that limits their influence. The, England's printing industry is, again, unusually concentrated, very London-centric, so scholars in Oxford and Cambridge couldn't rush their books into print the way that Martin Luther could for using, using local booksellers. Um, but that also does help to avoid attracting attention. And they may not be in London, but they are plugged into the international world of Latin scholarship. England's academics will have been amongst the first to hear the German friar's name. Luther's books are on sale in Oxford as early as 1520. But Oxford, um, the, the 
university which had indirectly produced the Lollard movement was, as a result, twitchy about dangerous ideas. It's Cambridge, the younger upstart of the two, which had recently put itself spectacularly on the map by hosting Europe's premier academic celebrity, Erasmus of Rotterdam, for a few years. It's Cambridge that seizes the opportunity. England as a whole, and Cambridge in particular, had fallen good and hard for Erasmus's style of religion, which prioritised inner piety and simplicity over outward ritual or hierarchy or anything that could be called superstition. Luther was not a disciple of Erasmus, very much not. But to begin with, plenty of people thought he was, and it's true that there were some real common points between them. So Cambridge was fertile ground. And if not many scholars there became fully signed up Lutherans, I mean, there wasn't really any such thing, there were plenty of people who were Luther curious, who stayed up late into the night talking excitedly about new ideas the way that students do with their bright-eyed young friends. And that mood of undergraduate excitement is one to hold on to. I, I said in the first lecture in this series that what Catholic reformers like Thomas More wanted to do, what he described in his famous Utopia, was to turn society into a giant monastery. What the evangelicals and their successors, whom we can properly call Protestants, wanted to do was to turn society into a giant university where everyone would spend their time earnestly debating doctrine, studying the Bible, fearlessly pursuing truth together. Before long, this mood started to bubble out from the colleges. The first public crisis came at Christmas 1525, when a Cambridge friar was arrested following a sermon whose acerbic criticism of the, of the church drew heavily on Luther. The church where he preached has long since been revamped, of course, but they still have the pulpit that he used. By the end of the decade, there are networks of curious dabblers in evangelical ideas, actually in both universities. And some people go beyond dabbling. In 1523, William Tyndale, who had been schooled at Oxford in Erasmus's idealism, proposed translating the New Testament into English. He's denied permission and he does it anyway. He moves to Germany to have his translation printed in 1525 to six and decisively throws his lot in with the reformers. He became the network of a small but formidable group of evangelical English exiles in the Netherlands, smuggling printed New Testaments and polemical tracts back to England book running networks sprang up. Robert Foreman, the master of a Cambridge college turned rector of a wealthy London parish, oversaw a distribution web which encompassed the city, both universities, and even reached west as far as Reading and Bristol. A few daring preachers spreading out from the universities began testing what they could get away with. But England's well-oiled anti-heresy machine was not far behind them. Foreman's network was cracked in 1528. 
Thomas More, as Lord Chancellor from 1529 to 32, worked with the bishops in a formidable crackdown on the new heresies. Preachers were swiftly arrested. Satisfyingly, many of them could be persuaded to recant, but others held firm and the regime was ready to follow through. Between 1530 and 33, at least 13 evangelicals were burned as unrepentant heretics, including the most brilliant of Tyndale's colleagues, John Frith, whose conscience wouldn't let him sit safely at home, safely abroad while his brethren at home suffered. A price was set on Tyndale's own head, and despite extensive precautions, he was betrayed to the Netherlandish authorities in 1535 and executed the following year. That should have been the beginning of the end of England's Protestant Reformation. The English church and state were more than capable of snuffing out such a movement or at least reducing it to the level of an annoyance. But by the time of Tyndale's death, everything had changed. Thomas More himself had died the previous year for his once orthodox faith. And Henry VIII's dispute with, and then vendetta against the Pope, provided English evangelicals with what seemed like a heaven-sent opportunity. The evangelicals' alliance with the king was always an awkward one. For a few idealists, there simply was no no deal to be done. Tyndale, took a stern view of a king who was trying to claim divine sanction for his adulterous lusts, and the king, whose ability to hold a grudge was second to none, never forgave Tyndale, even as he read his books with approval and licensed a very likely revised version of his Bible translation. But for evangelicals who could persuade themselves that the king's first marriage really was unlawful, and most of them could if they tried hard enough, the possibilities were mouth-watering. Denouncing papal tyranny suddenly became a route not to the stake, but to royal favour. Many of the people around the king were now evangelicals, not least his intended new queen, Anne Boleyn, and his indispensable new minister, Thomas Cromwell. The two of them were never allies, and by the end were mortal enemies. But they did agree on one thing, and that was evangelical religion. Um, Partly thanks to their patronage, Henry was now staffing his church with men like Hugh Latimer, a Cambridge evangelical who was, by most accounts, the most electrifying preacher of his generation, Um, a man able to hold an open-air crowd spellbound even during a heavy downpour and able under the right circumstances to start a religious riot with just a few sentences. In 1535, this is the man whom the king made Bishop of Worcester. And Henry needed no persuading to make the most senior appointment of all. In 1532, he lifted another Cambridge scholar, Thomas Cranmer, from academic obscurity to be Archbishop of Canterbury, an appointment based not on not only on his personal rapport with this earnest rising theologian, but also and above all on the fact that the new archbishop was going to have to, as his first job, preside over the replacement of the king's first wife with his second. The king needed someone he could absolutely, utterly rely on to dislike the pope 
as much as he himself now did. This was going to become one of the defining features of Henry's Reformation. He himself was no Protestant. He was his own thing, an idiosyncratic hodgepodge of doctrines, whose keynote was his unwavering faith in his own God-given authority. He disliked Martin Luther's heresies. He held firm to a great deal of Catholic doctrine. But he also needed allies. And if it came to the crunch, he was almost always more willing to extend a cautious hand to the heretics than he was willing to risk his kingdom once again being subjugated to the Bishop of Rome. And it's on that deep strategic advantage that England's tiny, well-placed evangelical minority built a Protestant Reformation. Progress was slow. Promising diplomatic negotiations with the new Lutheran territories of Germany and Scandinavia aimed at forming an anti-papal common front limped on. But evangelicals were willing to be patient. They had reason to hope that time was on their side, that as more of them could replace the old guard as the king was slowly worked on by his wife and his chief minister and his archbishop, he'd join their cause and bring the country with him. And so it seemed for most of the 1530s. Small, partial victories were being chalked up by the evangelicals, some of them not small. The monasteries, those vast monuments to clerical self-satisfaction, which leached resources from the pious in order to mumble useless prayers for the dead, were suppressed. The network of shrines and pilgrimages and relics and indulgences which lured the faithful into superstition and idolatry, you know, the very issue which had first provoked Luther's protest, they're banned, they're publicly mocked. And above all, the great achievement, the act that convinces any doubters amongst the evangelicals that the king really is at heart on their side, the English Bible is first legalised and then made freely available in every parish church. Henry does it because of his touchingly naive belief that anybody else who read the Bible would discover in it what he discovered himself, that is, that God has appointed him, Henry Tudor, as supreme head of the church. The evangelicals' faith in the power of the English Bible was, if anything, even greater than that. For them, it was the great flood that would wash away the filth of Rome, the great enlightening that would dispel all the darkness of popery. Once the English had heard the word of God so long hidden from them in Latinate obscurity, the scales would fall from their eyes and they'd see the old church for the lecherous corrupt monstrosity which had been exploiting them for so many centuries. And instead the realm would become that giant university that the brethren in Cambridge had dreamt of. Listen to this description of one of the first towns where evangelical religion broke out of its scholarly and clerical and mercantile ghetto, Hadley in Suffolk. If we were to read about a religious revival in a small town nowadays, we would expect to hear about dramatic conversions or weeping, mass meetings and so forth. But this is what was said about Hadley in the 1530s. The people became exceedingly well learned in the Holy Scriptures, as well women as men, 
so that a man might have found among them many that had often read the whole Bible through and that could have said a great part of St. Paul's epistles by heart and very well and readily have given a godly learned sentence, a judgment in any matter of controversy. The whole town seemed rather an university of the learned than a town of cloth making or laboring people. This dream, of course, was as naive as the king's. Hadley doesn't, in fact, seem to have been nearly as godly as the reformers hoped. Neither there nor anywhere else did the English Bible sweep all before it. England's Protestant Reformation was going to come, but neither quickly nor easily. At the end of the 1530s, Henry's subjects were reminded that he was not and was not about to become an evangelical. The king personally presided over a heresy trial at which an outspoken evangelical was burnt alive. The following year, negotiations with the German Lutherans broke down, provoking Henry into a grumpy legislative reassertion of a series of the traditional doctrines the Germans had been trying to persuade him to drop. Cromwell tried to use a new royal marriage to relaunch the diplomatic effort in 1540. But this match, Henry VIII's fourth, was such a humiliating fiasco that it ended up costing Cromwell his head. Evangelicals were dismayed, and some of them fled abroad. But in fact, it's the traditionalists who hoped for a turn back towards Rome who were disappointed. During the 1540s, it became clear that the aging King Henry would neither go on nor back. Both religious factions scored minor victories. The king firmly stated his opposition to evangelical doctrines of salvation and imposed rather ineffective restrictions on the English Bible. He allowed several limited bouts of persecution of evangelicals. But he also ordered English language orders for public and private prayer, um, had a further purge of images in churches and consistently undermined the doctrine of purgatory. The really decisive change that took place during these confusing years in the 40s wasn't in government policy, but amongst the evangelicals themselves. As they digested the fact that the king was not and never really had been on their side, their positions hardened. The tipping point came in the summer of 1546. A veteran evangelical preacher named Edward Crome, who was a man with moderate Lutheran-leaning views, was arrested for a provocative sermon. He made a show of defiance and was then persuaded to make an abject recantation. This was, by this stage, a pretty well-rehearsed dance. Evangelicals had learned how far they could push their luck. If they pushed it too far, then they would pretend to apologize, the regime would pretend to believe them, and it avoids a nasty confrontation. This was the third time in Crome's career he'd made a public recantation. But some of his supporters either didn't know the rules of the game or were now tired of playing it. A wave of more defiant figures surfaced after Crome's recantation, denouncing him for his faint-heartedness and abandoning his nuanced positions for more full-throated denunciations of Romish error. A group of these radicals went defiantly to the stake that summer 
most prominent amongst them, the fiery Lincolnshire gentlewoman, Anne Askew. These people had friends in high places, senior members of the King's Council, even Queen Catherine Parr herself were said to be supporting them. And the interrogators went to the edge of the law and beyond to try to secure damning testimony from them. Askew was tortured on the rack in the Tower of London when the Lieutenant of the Tower refused to take part in such a flagrantly illegal act, the Lord Chancellor operated the rack with his own hands. And Askew was so badly injured that by the time she was executed, she could no longer stand. But she still wouldn't give them any names. And from the stake, she shouted down the preacher who was trying to denounce her heresies to the crowd. She was celebrated like no English evangelical martyr before her. And this really marks a turning of the tide. A whole swathe of previously moderate gospelers, not least Archbishop Cranmer himself, decided in 1546 that the time for patience and compromise was over. They needed to do more than simply wait. The world wasn't going to fall into their laps. The English Bible wasn't going to sweep all before it. They had to act. They had to make it happen. They're hardening into a party with a clear and radical agenda. And this is the point where we can drop this mealy-mouthed talk of evangelicals and call them what they were becoming, Protestants. And then almost at that moment, they were handed the keys to the kingdom. In January 1547, the old king died. It's not pure political chance that the Regency government for the new King Edward VI ended up in the hands of a Protestant clique. Henry had entrusted his young son's education chiefly to evangelicals for the reason I mentioned before. He might dislike their doctrines, but at least he could trust them not to be treacherous agents of the Bishop of Rome. And the result was that the nine-year-old king's Protestantism was inchoate, but unmistakable. So the strategic patience of the 1530s was vindicated just at the moment that it had been abandoned. The new regime threw itself fully behind Archbishop Cranmer's project to create a fully reformed Protestant church in England, now to be modelled less on the pragmatic settlements of Lutheran Germany than on the radical purity of the Swiss and Southern German cities like Zurich and Strasbourg and Geneva. The time for patience was over. <clears throat> These were revolutionary years with a radical government determined to bulldoze through its agenda in the teeth of any opposition. God was on their side. The greatest danger lay in hesitation. If Edward VI had lived longer, this is what would have happened. The Church of England would have adopted an assertively Protestant confession of faith, structure and order for worship. Cranmer went through two versions of his Book of Common Prayer in 1549-1552, steadily weaning the population off traditional practice, ceremonial and doctrine. A third, maybe a fourth edition, would have continued this trajectory. Cranmer's idealistic project to renew the English church's legal structure was blocked by the government in 1552, but given another few years, a watered-down version would doubtless have been enacted. 
bishops would have been replaced with superintendents. The cathedrals, entities which really serve no purpose in a Protestant church, would have disappeared. There would have been an argument of what to do with them. Cranmer would have wanted to use the wealth to be seized from them um, to train a new generation of Protestant preaching ministers, maybe even to turn them into new universities. Uh, the government would probably have instead swiped the lot. But whether or not it was well-resourced, England would have had an unmistakable Protestant Reformation. Instead, that moment of possibility remains a mirage. And it's replaced by a catastrophe, by Mary's accession, England's reconciliation with Rome, an unprecedentedly intense wave of persecution. Hundreds are executed, not least Bishop Latimer and Archbishop Cranmer himself. Cranmer, in a throwback to those days of compromise under King Henry, under pressure offered a partial recantation of his convictions. But that game was out of date. He's burned anyway, and he famously held the hand that signed the recantations in the flames, triumphantly turning that moment of wavering into the reign's most dramatic demonstration of Protestant steeliness. Meanwhile, almost a thousand English Protestants fled abroad, forming themselves into churches in exile. They prayed for their nation's popish ordeal to end, but they also did the other thing which passionate radicals tend to do and fell out with one another bitterly. A split felt most painfully in the exiled church in Frankfurt. One party there believed that this was a moment to stop the clock, to stick, more or less, to the 1552 prayer book, to demonstrate their loyalty to their dead king. The other party believed that it was a moment not to pause, but to accelerate, to embrace the spirit of Cranmer and Edward VI's Reformation by surging forward to the destinations that they had or should have had in mind. When that group of zealots are thrown out of Frankfurt, they found refuge in John Calvin's Geneva. And they embark there on a series of radical projects, a new English translation of the Bible, a new order for worship based on Calvin's rather than Cranmer's model, and for some of them talk of fermenting rebellion, even assassination against Catholic rulers. Didn't the Bible say that idolatry should be punished by death? But Mary died without Protestant intervention and the new Queen Elizabeth restored a Protestant settlement. But initial hopes that they could pick up where they'd left off at Edward's death are quickly disappointed. Queen Elizabeth's so-called settlement in 1559 restores the religious status quo that her brother had bequeathed in the last year of his life, and everybody, supporters and opponents alike, assumed that the engine would be fired up again and the relentless drive forward to further reformation would continue. It felt like another moment for strategic patience. Let's recognize that the glass is half full, that the tap's surely gonna start to flow again, work with this new queen to reach their common destination. But it quickly became clear that she was following her father's example as well as her brother's. Having defined a religious position in the first year of her reign, she would not budge from it. 
as the exiles returned and threw themselves into the work of reformation. They brought that post-Frankfurt divide back with them. So many of them accepted office in Elizabeth's church, either content with her settlement or at least willing to work with it to move it in the right direction. Two-thirds of Elizabeth's new bench of bishops were returned exiles. And they did secure a handful of victories. In particular, the queen was plainly reluctant to allow priests and bishops to marry, but if she wanted to staff her new church, she had no choice. But a minority of the former exiles set their face against the regime's unacceptable compromises. And the wariness was very much mutual. The Genevans' talk of rebellion and assassination left Elizabeth permanently suspicious of anyone associated with that fanatical city. And so the story of the Protestant Reformation from Elizabeth's reign onwards can be told in two ways. There's an eye-catching, a prominent story, and this is of running battles over the nature of the Reformation, a battle between increasingly impatient reformers who wanted to pick up the pace of change and the queen and her allies who were determined to draw the line and say thus far and no further. And caught between those two were the patient reformers, biding their time, waiting for the world to turn their way as an increasingly ill-tempered political struggle seemed to make a mockery of their modest hopes. For the Queen consistently blocked any aspirations for further reform. Battle was first properly joined in 1563 when the Church's Parliament convocation considered a, a modest set of ritual changes on issues like the use of pipe organs or the making of the sign of the cross in baptism. You know, these are not matters on which anyone's salvation turns. But for the regime, these harmless and familiar features of Christian piety were points to be defended, while for their opponents, who from now on begin to have the derisive label Puritan slapped onto them, for the Puritans, these things are the dregs of Antichrist in which the half-reformed English church was still sodden, errors that must be swept away. Naturally, the Queen and her allies made sure that the Puritans were defeated in convocation. And this was the pattern. The greatest moment of hope for the Puritans came in 1575, when the Queen appoints a new Archbishop of, Can of, of Canterbury, Edmund Grindle, a former exile, plainly committed to pressing for further reforms. The Queen blocks his plans, he stands up to her, she places him under house arrest and tries to deprive him of office. Repeatedly, Puritans of one stripe or another put forward proposals in Parliament or Convocation, and the Queen's managers ensured that every one of them is defeated. A few despairing Puritans begin to trickle into exile again, believing that half a Reformation is no better than none. In 1588 to 9, one group of Puritans vented their frustrations in a series of scurrilous, wickedly satirical pamphlets aimed at the bishops under the pseudonym Martin Mar Prelate. After 30 years of playing nice, it felt good, but it also triggered a crackdown in which a string of dissidents were imprisoned and a handful executed for sedition. 
for these Puritans, then, England's Protestant Reformation is over almost before it's begun. Only in 1640 to 41 do these people finally come to power when the collapse of King Charles I's government leaves him at the mercy of his parliament. It's the Puritan moment, their chance to reform the church, as they put it, root and branch. No more tinkering with ritual details. No, bishops, cathedrals, set liturgies, the whole rotten apparatus can be taken down and a proper reformed church set up in its place, governed by presbyteries, the way that Scots and, and other Calvinists across Europe had pioneered, finally completing the English Reformation. It's so close. It's another revolutionary moment, like Edward VI's reign a century before. And it stays just out of their reach. First of all, the king succeeds in dividing his opponents enough to be able to mount a civil war. Even so, Parliament controls London and the southeast and slowly grinds out a military victory. And surely that must leave the way open. In 1643, a year into the war, a solemn league and covenant binding the English church to its Presbyterian Scottish counterpart was sworn. Parliament abolishes bishops and, in case anyone had missed the point, has Archbishop Lord of Canterbury beheaded. Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer, which now seemed hopelessly redolent of the old ways, was banned and replaced with a new purified order for worship. A formidable gathering of theologians was assembled and charged with drawing up a statement of faith. And the result, the Westminster Confession of 1646, remains a touchstone for Presbyterians around the world today. But this dreamt of Reformation slips out of their grasp. Four years of war had changed the country. Radical movements were springing up, outflanking the Puritans and Presbyterians, who now started to look like yesterday's revolutionaries. We'll be coming back to them in the last lecture of the series. And the Presbyterians in particular have got no good solution to the problem of what to do with the king who they've defeated. When the radicals eventually cut off his head, the Presbyterians are horrified, but they don't have a good practical alternative to offer. And the result is that they and the Republican governments of Oliver Cromwell, Cromwell regard each other as enemies. When the British Republic collapses and the monarchy and the pre-war Church of England are restored in 1660 to 62, the Presbyterians and other Puritans are locked out of the national church that they'd come so close to making their own. Instead, they form dissenting or so-called nonconformist churches, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, even some Baptists. Under King Charles II, they endured considerable persecution. And then from 1689 to 1828, a legal regime of so-called toleration, which nevertheless systematically discriminated against them. And they survived. And from the end of the 18th century, they're joined by another group of unrepentant Protestants ejected from the Church of England for their refusal to submit their consciences to its laws and processes. That's, that is the Methodists. And together, these nonconformists, the Protestant nonconformists, have been 
hugely influential communities in English history and also in England's global reach, but they never succeeded in their aspiration to define the nation in the way that Presbyterian for centuries defined Scotland. In this sense, England's Protestant Reformation was imagined, but never really happened. But as I said, there are two ways to tell this story. And that story of, of politics, of high hopes that came to nothing, the purists' perspective is only one of them. While the Puritans of the Elizabethan church were fighting and losing their set-piece battles over contentious points of law and ritual, another strain of Puritan had a different perspective. From these people's viewpoint, important as those contentious issues might be, they're not what the Protestant Reformation was really about. Issues of ritual and structure were only a means to an end. What truly mattered was bringing the gospel to England's people so that souls might be saved and God glorified. The Reformation wouldn't succeed or fail at the level of national politics, but parish by parish and soul by soul. And so a generation of moderate Puritans, many of them impatient for structural reforms, nevertheless reconciled themselves to working within an imperfectly Protestant church and began the slow work of building a Protestant nation from the ground up. And they thought they'd failed. Their rhetoric is full of division between the godly minority and the carnal Protestants and church papists and atheists who composed the mass of the population. Many people resented them, moralizing busybodies being easy to dislike. The lines dividing doctrinal self-confidence from obnoxious self-righteousness from rank hypocrisy were thin. Puritans and anti-Puritans alike could agree that the Puritan bid for the nation's soul had failed. But we shouldn't take them at their word. By their nature, Puritans were perfectionists, much readier to see a glass as one-tenth empty than as nine-tenths full. Their imagined reformation was an impossible mirage, but their achievements were real. The English church's commitment to, to full-blown Protestant um, reform was, was undoubted. Elizabeth's third Archbishop of Canterbury, John Whitgift, was a merciless hammer of Puritan dissenters. But he also ordered his clergy to study the sermons of the formidable Zurich minister Heinrich Bullinger and stamped out any open defiance of the Calvinist doctrine of predestination. Predestination, Calvinist Protestantism's maybe most distinctive and most divisive doctrine, was the English church's consensus position, not quite its unchallenged orthodoxy, during the reigns of Elizabeth and James I. In 1618 to 19, England even sent delegates to an international synod of reformed churches in the Netherlands, summoned to resolve a dispute about predestination. The other Calvinist churches unproblematically recognised their English colleagues as brethren, 
the English happily supported the Synod's staunch reaffirmation of predestination. This was a shared world to which they all belonged. And more to the point, the Reformation on the ground in England was real. Oh, it was slow, far slower than Puritans of any kind wanted. But those who had the patience to wait for it discovered that it was relentless. There were no, universi no, un no new universities in painful contrast to Calvinist Scotland, which after the foundation of Edinburgh University in 1582 had twice as many universities as England did. But there were new colleges founded at the old pair. By the 1580s, foundations like Emmanuel College Cambridge were steadily pumping committed Protestant ministers into the church's bloodstream. And it's not all book learning either. A string of aspiring young Protestant ministers not only took a degree at Emmanuel, but also served an apprenticeship at the Cambridgeshire village of Dry Drayton under its minister, Richard Greenham, who is a Puritan of a different sort. He managed to avoid confrontations about the ritual scruples he held. He focused on taking his message out of his pulpit into painstaking individual pastoral work with his people, walking with them in the fields as they labored, as much a counselor as a preacher. In an age which groaned under too many hefty books of theological controversy, Greenham wrote very little, but his sayings and advice were lovingly collected and published by the many students who passed through his vicarage. And they have a practical wisdom to them, suggesting that those who couldn't control their tempers should simply moderate their diet. He offers advice on how to avoid what he calls tediousness in prayer and warned long-faced Puritans who think we should keep a continual sorrowing that rather we have a flat precept to the contrary, continually to rejoice. Others took up the theme. The greatest theologian, the most internationally popular author of late Elizabethan England, William Perkins, said virtually nothing in his many books about contentious ritual or structural issues. His focus was pastoral on how to apply that doctrine of predestination to individual believers' lives. He was aware that it could lead believers into either despair or conceit, and he wanted to steer a path between those two dangers, affirming predestination in strongest terms, while also mapping out how Christians can live and draw strength from lives of the highest moral seriousness. His posthumously book, The Treatise of the Cases of Conscience, became a classic of Protestant devotion. And he was translated into languages as diverse as Welsh, Spanish, Hungarian, and Czech. But even Perkins's success was eclipsed by Lewis Bailey, Bishop of Bangor, whose 1612 book, The Practice of Piety, has been published in 124 English editions and 199 more in at least 13 other languages, including the Wampanoag language of Massachusetts, and though this is most more recent, so maybe it doesn't count, in Korean. Modern readers might find its 800 pages hard going. Um, the club of those of us who've read the whole thing is a select one. But 
what it offers is a systematic guide to living the Protestant life day by day, from morning to evening prayers at your bedside and everything in between. This, not the battles over bishops and liturgies, was what the Reformation was about. And the preachers found audiences and the books found readers. Local communities lent their support to the cause. Towns established endowed lectureships to provide themselves with proper Protestant preaching. Even many of the impoverished upland parishes of Northern England raised funds to build new chapels and to attract preachers. And the cheap pamphlets and ballads that passed from hand to hand in post-Reformation England tell their own story. These texts are suffused with Protestant imagery and assumptions. It's not just that markers of Catholic thought and identity, you know, saints and prayer for the dead, are steadily retreating, but that Protestant notions of divine providence, of Protestant patterns of piety, above all the now ubiquitous English Bible, become pervasive features of English culture. It's the sea that the English swim in, Puritans and anti-Puritans alike. So the Puritans lost every battle, but if any of them had the patience to see it, they were quietly winning the war. Between the Elizabethan settlement and the English Civil War, the Church of England was, bluntly and unproblematically, a reformed Protestant, a Calvinist church. And it was also in those years much closer to being a truly national church than it's ever been since. This has left some awkward legacies to later Anglicanism. The fact that many Puritans were driven into nonconformity after the Restoration has given rise to a wholly unjustified myth amongst Anglicans. That is, that the Puritans had been cuckoos in the Church of England's nest since the beginning and aren't really a part of Anglicanism's history. The majority of Anglicans today are in long-standing denial over their Puritan heritage, reluctant to recognise that these people are part of Anglicanism's story, fully part of it, not just on sufferance. Meanwhile, a minority strain in modern Anglicanism is so enthusiastic to claim this Protestant Puritan heritage for itself that it asserts that the Reformation ought to be normative for Anglicanism, not just one strand within it. But the plain facts are these, that the Church of England was once a mainstream Reformed Protestant church, a Calvinist church, and secondly, that it isn't one anymore. How it and the English-speaking world more widely should deal with that mixed heritage is, well, is the story of the next lecture. But for now, it's a story of two books. The Book of Common Prayer is the more complicated of the two. When Cranmer introduced its first editions in 1549 and 52, it was an alarmingly radical engine of reform. Its form was radical. The old Latin liturgy had been a framework within which lay people could, could pray their own prayers. But this new English common prayer was intended to be a united voice in which the minister spoke to the people as much as to God, and in which the greatest part of worship was instruction. The newly 
the, the new liturgy had in some ways an outwardly traditional frame, but that frame was a, a digestif intended to make two novel features palatable to a still pretty conservative people. First of all, the huge slabs of the Bible that comprise the bulk of most of the services. This is a legacy of that early faith that the English Bible alone would carry in the, carry the country before it. And secondly, the actual texts written for it taught a robustly Protestant theology, especially in the 1552 version. But when the prayer book was restored after the Civil War, although the text was virtually unchanged, its meaning was reversed. Despite its title, it no longer truly aspired to national common prayer. It was an instrument of division now, not one of unity. It's intended to smoke out those who wanted to stay part of the national church, but who couldn't tolerate this half-reformed liturgy. And of course, its meaning has changed in centuries since in the many contexts that it's found a home in. Partisans on various sides naturally try to claim one of those historic meanings as authentic and normative. There is no good reason to believe them. The second, simpler book is, of course, the English Bible itself. The English Reformation doesn't produce any theologians of truly European stature, but in Tyndale, it did produce a great translator. It's a plain fact that he did more than any other single individual to shape the modern English language, um, and that the English Bible he set in motion would become central, central to English identity for centuries. Tyndale once promised that if only an English Bible could be set forth freely, he would be willing never to write another word. Henry VIII pursued Tyndale to his death, or was, was you know, deeply implicated in his arrest. But he also did what Tyndale asked. He promulgated an authorised version of the English Bible in 1539, and Elizabeth I followed up with her own authorised version, the Bishop's Bible in 1568. But these royal attempts to seize control of the English biblical tradition were seen off by the exiles in Geneva, the original Puritans, who in the 1550s produced a new English Bible printed in 1560. This Geneva Bible had a shaky start, but Edmund Grindle, in one of his few achievements as Archbishop before the Queen silenced him, succeeded in popularising it, and it quickly outstripped its official rival. It's filled with handy and firmly Protestant annotations to guide readers. It appeared in every format, pocket-sized to lectern-sized. It seeped into private homes and, to and into England's verbal landscape. When Shakespeare quoted from the Bible, this is the translation that he used. And so when King James I set into motion a project to update the English Bible, it's the ubiquitous Geneva version, not the unloved Elizabeth, official Elizabeth translation that he was competing with. The translators who produced the King James Bible in 1611 took a generation or more to win their competition with the Geneva Bible. And when they eventually did it, it's partly because of the scholarly care and excellence with which they worked, 
partly because they very deliberately drew on Tyndale and on the Geneva version, revising rather than reinventing the text, and partly because they shed those provocative annotations and made this into a Bible for readers in every tradition. They would, I think, have been surprised to know that they'd created a text that was still being read and loved around the world four centuries later. But they might have concluded that that showed that they'd faithfully done their duty. They might also have noticed that with enough patience, the English Bible really does seem to have carried all before it. <laughs>